We're starting a new series of conversations today. We're calling it, Who's the One? This series comes with a built-in challenge for each of us, for me and for every one of you. I'm I'm talking to every one of us. We're going to identify one person that we believe God would have us make an impact on over the next several months. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning, and we don't believe that anybody's here by accident. You know, Lord, we look today for our purpose. We break open our chests and ask you to massage into our hearts what you have for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to read today an incredible exchange, and you're going to hear an explanation today of why it's so incredible, an incredible interchange between Jesus and four young men who would eventually become his followers, his disciples. It's recorded for us in Matthew's biography, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look with me. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. It will also be on the screen, and it will be on mygateway.life. So if you go to your phone in your browser, look up mygateway.life, go to the sermon card, there, the scripture will be there, and uh, the main points for today will be there if you want to look at that later. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, so just notice how casual the setting is, and that's going to be important. Remember that. He saw, this is Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. We're told in another one of the biographies that that's actually a nickname that Jesus gave him. His name is Simon. Peter in Greek means rocky. So Jesus said, hey, you're rocky, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Again, important. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, another important detail, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. You may be seated. So how would you answer if I asked, are you a Christian? I bet most of you would say, of course. A few of you would say, of course I'm a Christian. I grew up in America. Some of you would say, yes, and you would know exactly what you mean by that. Others of you would say, you know, I'm not really sure because there are a few of you here today who are investigating this, and I'm excited that you're here. Some of you might say, no, but I admire Jesus. A few of you would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like those Christians. And they surprise you to know that the first followers of Jesus were not called Christians. Acts 11.26 is the first time we see this appear. It's in the city of Antioch, and it was probably decades after the Jesus movement started. Plus, when they used the word Christian originally, it might have been a derogatory term, like these people think of themselves like little Jesuses. So if they weren't called Christians, what were they called? Well, a quick survey of the word search in the New Testament will let us know that the word Christian is used only three times in the entire New Testament, while the word disciple is used 281 times. They were called disciples. And why does that matter? I like what Andy Stanley says about this. Andy Stanley is a pastor of a church in Atlanta, and he said, quote, I want to suggest to you that changing the primary word that we use to describe ourselves, we lost the clarity 
that the word disciple conveyed about what a follower of Jesus actually is, end quote. Okay, so what does disciple convey? What is this clarity that Andy Stanley is talking about? So let's go back to Matthew 4, 18, and we'll trace through this story with some background, and you're going to hear some things that knocked me out in understanding the whole Jesus story. There's something very important about this exchange that should get our attention. Peter and Andrew, and then later James and John, are fishermen. So don't miss that. In fact, James and John are described not only as fishermen, but as sons of Zebedee. And why is that important? Well, all first century readers would have immediately known that they were apprentices in the fishing trade to their fathers. This is actually a pretty typical pattern for the time. Here's how it worked in first century Judaism, and really in, in all first century culture. All Hebrew boys would have gone to Torah school from the time they were five. All Hebrew boys would have gone to Torah school from the time they were five. And Torah is the word for the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Torah school would have been a time from five years old, they began to study the Torah. You started at age five, and it started with a ceremony for each of these boys. They'd get all the five-year-old boys in a village or in an area together, and they would put a little bit of honey on their tongue. Now, for most boys, they were poor, so this was the first time they had tasted sweetness. And I remember the first time we gave Jordan ice cream. And he, you know, the texture of it, it was cold. He was unused to it. And it's kind of like, man, it's ah, you went for it. So this would be the first time they had tasted sweetness. And, and the sweetness would have flooded them. And at the same time, passages from Genesis would have been read to them. The impression that was created was, this word is going to be sweet to you for the rest of your life. And for the next five years... They would study Torah, and they would memorize sections of the Torah. Again, this usually started about age 5. Then by about age 10, there was a weeding out process. At that point, they would identify you know, the, the upper crust, the, the sharpest boys, the ones that had done best in Torah school, maybe the upper 20% or the upper 10%, depending on the village or, or uh, wherever they were from. The rest of them, the ones who didn't make the cut, went back home to their fathers. And they would begin to pursue being apprentices in the family business. This would include boys like James and John, sons of Zebedee, and Peter and Andrew. In other words, fishermen apprentices to their father Zebedee. And also Peter and his brother Andrew, whose father is not even mentioned. And that may just be an oversight, or it may be because his family was of such unimportant status, his father's name was not even worth mentioning in the biography. Do you see... These were all boys who did not make the cut. They were not the cream of the crop. And yet, Rabbi Jesus picks these four apprentice fishermen to be his disciples. The most important thing for us to understand about this is that the only ability Jesus is looking for is availability. You don't qualify yourself into following Jesus. If you don't feel good enough, take heart, you can't be good enough. If you don't feel smart enough, take heart, you can't be smart enough. That's not how you get here. Now, most places in the world, most times in history, that is really good news. For some Northern Virginians, that's challenging because we've earned our way everywhere. We've always been the cream of the crop, and you need to know Jesus does not care. The only ability he's looking for is availability. Paul makes the same point. 
when writing to one of his churches, he's writing to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth, and he says this to them. Listen to this. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, I'm beginning in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Consider your connection to God, how this happened. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The only ability Jesus is looking for is availability. This is one of the reasons why our success can sometimes be a detriment to our spiritual life and not an asset. Many of the things we're the proudest of, many of the things at the top of our resume are at best a nice add-on to a life with Jesus. But none of them are essential. The only ability that Jesus is looking for is availability. Are you available to be, to, to be trained and used by him to make a significant impact on those around you? If so, you're qualified. Now, the 10-year-old boys who remained in Torah school would study on till about age 17. And during that time, they would learn the rest of what we now call the Old Testament. They would learn Joshua through Malachi. So they would learn the rest of the history. They would learn the, the poems and the songs, the Proverbs, and then they would learn the prophetic books. Then when they got to 17, there was another cut. And if you wanted to go on with your religious studies after that, then you had to find yourself a rabbi, a rabbi that you admired, obviously. And you had to apply to become that rabbi's Talmud. Rabbi just means teacher. Talmud means disciple or student or follower. When you found your rabbi, you would go to them and, quote, sit at their feet. And that's the way they would phrase it. You would go to school with your rabbi. In other words, you would study under their influence. Now, in most cases, you had to request to learn from the rabbi, and the rabbis would examine you with a series of questions and put you through a series of tests to see if you were worthy. How much of, of the Torah do you know? What do you make of the, the time when Moses... What about Exodus 14, and how do you interpret this? And now let's go to the historical books. Tell me about the time when Joshua named the first five kings. You see, the rabbis were able to be really selective because in those days... Becoming a religious ruler was one of the best possible jobs. Hard for me to imagine. It was prestigious and also meaningful in the community. And so almost every Hebrew boy dreamed of becoming a religious expert one day. Imagine that. So Gamaliel was kind of like the LeBron James of his day. And so the rabbis could choose only the smartest and most talented boys to be in their Talmudim. Along with this, rabbis tended to be picky about who they accepted as disciples because the rabbi knew that they were choosing somebody who represented them. Well, this is Gamaliel's student. What does he have to say? More than that, they were choosing someone that they believed had the capacity to become just like them, to inherit their position one day. Not just to know what they knew and to hear their teaching, but to do what they did. Then for several years, these Talmudim would follow their rabbis around and learn from them and eventually imitate them in every way. So obviously, rabbis would only want to select the very best students to be their disciples. Now you can see how unusual the interchange between Jesus and the Fisher apprentices was. The first century reader of Matthew's biography of Jesus, when he read this, he would be thinking, what is going on here? 
Not only do unschooled apprentice fishermen become students of Rabbi Jesus, but they don't even apply. Their families don't intercede and exercise whatever influence they can. No resumes seem to have been exchanged. There's no testing period. They don't even choose Jesus. Jesus chooses them. In fact, that's another critically important spiritual principle to understand in following Jesus. We don't choose Jesus. He chooses us. Jesus makes this abundantly clear to them in a later teaching. John records this in John chapter 15, verse 16. He says this, You did not choose me. They knew this well. We need to be reminded. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. We'll talk about that in a minute. That means we're not here because of how clever we are. We're not here because of our religious upbringing. I don't care how much Sunday school you went to or how many years you went to Catholic school. We're not here because of how spiritual we are. We're not here because we chose him. He chose us. There's one more thing we need to see about being a disciple of a first century rabbi. In Jesus' day... There was a really rare form of rabbi who possessed a characteristic that the Jewish people in Hebrew would have called smicha. Isn't that a great word? Smicha means authority. So these kinds of rabbis were very rare. We only know a few that were recognized as smicha rabbis in the first century. And they all had names. If you know Jewish history, you would know these names. They had names like Hillel, or Gamaliel. These guys were, first of all, masters of the Torah. And they were profoundly adept at teaching and at interpreting the text. In some cases, they were thought to be so wise that they could give new insight. Now, this typically, new ideas are dangerous. I had a seminary professor who used to always say, if you think of something new, it's wrong, because God's not going to show you something that he's kept hidden for 2,000 years. But smeet your rabbis, were allowed by the crowds and the other religious leaders to offer new interpretations because of their connection to God, because of their wisdom, because of what had been conferred on them. Now, to be regarded as a rabbi with smicha, usually there had to be evidence that you had done something miraculous, and you had to be recognized by at least two other rabbis. You didn't ask for it. Smicha was conferred on you. In other words, this was a really exclusive club, and it was hard to get into can you see how all of this lines up with the story of Jesus? Some of you are seeing this. If you know the story of Jesus, then you'll remember that at 12 years old, Jesus is in the temple, and he knows the, the Torah so well that the other religious authorities are listening to him, and they're amazed. Jesus frequently in his teaching said things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In other words, he's bringing new interpretation to approaching God, and he's bringing it with authority. Throughout the New Testament, his listeners were constantly amazed at his authority. Just a couple of chapters after Matthew 4, Matthew offers this observation. They were amazed because he taught them as one with, and they would have said, Smicha. He taught them as one with authority. In Hebrew, they would have said, that one has Smicha, not like the other scribes. This is also why throughout Jesus' career, the religious rulers ask him, where did you get your Smicha? Where did that come from? Who conveyed that smicha on you? Because they didn't want to recognize it. This is why they questioned his miracles. Now, they didn't question that the miracles happened. They couldn't do that because too many people had seen the miracles. But they questioned how they happened or when they happened or, or the source of it. Oh, that miracle happened by the power of Satan. Parentheses, 
He can't be Smicha. This is why some of the biographies of Jesus make such a big deal about John the Baptist. Look, John the Baptist was a teacher that all of the crowds recognized as Smicha. In droves, they went out to see John the Baptist at the Jordan. And after mine and Diane's trip to Jerusalem, I know what a trek that was. They went out to hear John the Baptist in the wilderness, and they got baptized by him as a sign that we want to be part of this new thing that God is doing. And then this guy, this Smicha guy, John the Baptist, acknowledges Jesus in the most profound way. At one point, Jesus comes out to John, and John says, hey, says to the whole crowd there, hey, there's somebody in the crowd, and he points to Jesus. There's somebody in the crowd. He's so much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. And then at the same moment, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm delighted. Now, when the average first century Jew heard this, their phone would blow up with messages from their friend. I think we've seen the new Smicha rabbi. And so crowds started to gather wherever Jesus went. They wanted to hear this new, supposedly Smicha rabbi. They wanted to hear his teaching and to experience his miracles. And now we see why this whole exchange was so extraordinary. The new rock star Smicha rabbi passes by a couple of brothers on the Sea of Galilee one day. Morning, men, what are you doing? We're fishing. What does it look like we're doing? Hey, wait. Wait a minute. Aren't you that new Smicha rabbi that people have been talking about? You guys like fishing? What? I said, do you guys like fishing? Why don't you come be part of my Talmudim? And I'll teach you how to fish for people. I'll teach you how to have a profound impact on your community. I'll show you how to live a life that influences others for good and for God. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Look, they knew they were part of the B team. They knew they hadn't made the cut. And here was a rabbi who some claimed had unparalleled smicha, inviting them to be his disciple, of course, gladly, wholeheartedly, all in, yes! And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means to be wholeheartedly all in as a student of his life and his ways. These first followers knew that they would learn Jesus' mannerisms. That's what Talmudim did. They knew they would learn how Jesus answered certain questions and what he taught about certain issues. They knew they would learn how to respond to different situations. That's what Talmudim did. Supposedly the highest compliment that you could pay a Talmud in this day and age was to say, and this is a quote from ancient text, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. And that was not a way of saying, hey, buddy, you need a shower. That was a way of saying, whatever your rabbi has stepped in, it has sprayed all over you because you're just like him. You sound like him. You answer questions the same way. You believe like him. You walk like him. You talk like him. You do the same things he does. You are covered with the stuff of your rabbi. That was the highest compliment for a first century disciple. And these first followers knew that they would become students of the life and way of Jesus. And because of who they were, and because of who he was, they were wholeheartedly, gladly, all in. I want to say a couple of things about being wholeheartedly all in. 
First of all, if we're going to be wholeheartedly all in with the Smitra Rabbi Jesus, then we've got to know what he said. This is the time of year when college students usually return to Gateway, and I try to find, you know, I have two or three typical things that I'll say. One of those is my attempt to just create impossible awkwardness so they have no idea what to do. And then I'll bail them out and ask a standard question. How is your semester? Not once, not once in all the years, not one time have I had one of them say, fantastic, every single word from every one of my professors was unbelievably inspiring. I could not wait to get out of bed every Monday through Friday. It was awesome. And then I went home and spent the rest of the day studying. It was incredible. Never heard that. Sorry, parents. You didn't say it either when you were in college. So don't expect anything different from your children. This business of doing college, it takes discipline. You're sometimes putting in the work of doing things that are not that thrilling to you because you know in the long run it pays off. And so it is with following Smeet your Rabbi Jesus. I don't know anyone who can say to me, every morning I wake up and I go to his word and I open up Leviticus and I'm blown away. Just, it's just awesome. All the rules. I can't, it's it changed my day. It changed my day. I can't wait till tomorrow. When I read the next bizarre passage from Numbers, that's even better, where they're just counting people. I love that. <laughs> it takes discipline. But in the long run, it's worth it because that's how we build a life of influence. We've got to know what he said. The second observation is that being wholeheartedly all in will mean leaving everything else. Leaving everything else. Leaving your apprenticeship, leaving your boats, leaving your village, leaving your father. So in this new series, by the way, we're joining with a lot of other churches. Who's your one? I didn't make that up. There are a lot of churches that are doing this or will do it or have done it. In fact, I have stolen some of today's, I mean borrowed, some of today's message and next week's in preparation for this from another church who's doing this. And I want you to hear a story that their pastor told in their church. So I'm just going to quote him. They're planting a church somewhere in the Middle East. He didn't identify where. We have a girl in our church right now who a couple of years ago, some missionaries from our church plant in the Middle East led her to faith in Christ. They baptized her there. Then her parents found out about it and demanded that she renounce her faith. She said, I can't. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. They said, if you don't renounce your faith, we're going to renounce you. Afterwards, they locked her in her room for days. She said that she overheard her father and her brother talking that night about killing her. She knew that they were serious. This was not a joke. Well, that night, in the middle of the night, they had an emergency in their family. Her sister-in-law went into labor prematurely, so they all rushed down to the hospital and left her by herself in her locked room. She knew this was her moment. If she was going to get out, this was going to be it. So she broke out, went to the missionary's house, and said, you've got to get me out of here because they're going to kill me. Well, to make a long story short, he says, over the period of a year or so, she made her way here. I met her for the first time last week here at our church where she is now taking up residence and applying as a refugee here in our community. Most of us are not going to experience anywhere near that level of sacrifice. The path laid out for us is much smoother and much easier. 
But the call in our lives is no different. Wholeheartedly, all in, as a student of the life and ways of Jesus. Whatever the cost, that must be the governing principle of our lives. All right, let's wrap up by recognizing one more thing. This is the most important principle of the day. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. This is the don't miss principle for the series. So we're going to spend four weeks talking about this, and then we're going to tee this up every few weeks after that just to remind ourselves of what we're doing because we're going to take several months trying to focus on this. So the don't miss this principle. It's the main point. What's the purpose of all this? What's the point of our discipleship with Rabbi Jesus? Well, let's ask the question another way. In that passage I read from John 15 earlier, we heard Jesus say, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that should last. So what is this lasting fruit? Jesus answers that question in that first exchange with Peter and Andrew, doesn't he? Come follow me, Jesus says, and I'll make you fishers of people. We'll catch them, we'll clean them, and then we're not going to eat them. We're going to release them and let them catch other people. This is how it works. You were built to be an influence. You were designed to make an impact on the lives of others. Three people from Gateway came to me this week to tell me stories about how God is literally using them to turn someone else's heart. Two of those people, it's a work situation. For one of those people, it's a neighbor. One of those people started a Bible study in their workplace. 15 minutes once a week. Their boss has come two out of the three times they've held the Bible study. Both times his eyes have welled up with tears. Both times he's found a chance to come speak to the person afterwards and essentially offer a spiritual confession. You know, I grew up with this. I know I should be doing better. Because God is moving. Because that's what God does when we make ourselves available. Let me say it more crudely. The purpose of your discipleship is spiritual reproduction. Believe it or not, God wants more of you running around. He actually wants more. I want to offer you a first step toward that happening, and I'm challenging all of us to take the step. I'm challenging all of us to take the step. This is not preacher speak. We're going to do this. So let's start by identifying one person toward whom we're drawn. One person in whose life we believe God would use us. One person who is far from God, but who stirs our heart. I want you to know, I started thinking about this series about six weeks ago, and it took several weeks for me to identify my one person. And i got to be honest, the person that God first brought to my mind, I didn't really think of it as God bringing it to my mind. This person just came to my mind after a couple of days, and I couldn't get them off my mind, and I tried to dismiss them because I don't really like this person that much. And so I said, let's go with somebody else, God. How about someone who, and I could, I'm serious, and I couldn't kind of get this person off my mind. And then I said, okay, well, all right, let's settle this. It's not that person. So what one, per and I couldn't get this person off my mind. So I'm stuck with this person. <laughs> who is your one person? So take a couple of weeks and identify your one person. I'm talking to all of us. Identify your one person. Imagine what God will do in this area if each of us identify and reach and move one person's life under the influence of God. What? 
So, what the first step is, you're going to identify one person, and then you're going to pray. That's it. That's step number one. We're going to spend the month of June praying. So that gives you a week and a half or so to identify your one person. And on June 1, we're going to start praying. The group that started the Who's Your One, they've created a prayer guide for us, 30-day prayer guide. And Gina has tossed that thing online for us. We've also got paper copies. So it begins on June 1, and they give us, like June 1, a little verse of Scripture and then a prayer that will take you 47 seconds. So they've got a blank space for you to fill in the name of your one person. And then June 2, they got another verse of Scripture and a prayer that will take you 39 seconds. And then June 3, they've got a prayer, and that one might take you 61 seconds. You can do this. And every day during the month of June, we're going to pray for our one person that God will use us and make available for us opportunities to be an influence in their lives. So one person. There are two ways to get your prayer guide. One, you can pick up a paper copy this morning or next week or the Sunday after that outside in the lobby. There's a paper copy of 30 Days of Prayer. Or go to mygateway.life. If you've never been, go this morning. Take your phone and your browser, mygateway.life, and go to the card that says, Who's Your One? And you can sign up for an email. And then June 1 through June 30, every day, you'll get an email with a link, and all you have to do is click on the link, and the digital copy of the prayer guide will come up with the prayer. You can do this the first thing when you get to work. Again, 60 seconds. So mygateway.life, sign up. If that's too hard for you, go to the blue wall, and they'll walk you through it outside. So we're going to pray during the month of June for our one person, all of us. And all God's people said... But they, they said it with meaning. They said it wholeheartedly and all in because they were going to do it. We're going to end this morning by having a meal together. This is God's mercy meal. And you were invited. How crazy is that? I mean, if this story is real, how crazy is it that you were invited here? So what I want you to think about this morning is the person who's not here, the one who could be in the seat beside you, think about what a thrill that will be. They get to be invited to this as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we want to begin this morning by dumping our baggage on you. I feel like apologizing for that, except you repeatedly invite us to do it. So we have blown it in so many ways. We've held on to anger. We have nurtured our lust. We have nurtured greed. We have nurtured our pride. We've nursed it. We've enjoyed it. And in your presence, we recognize not only is it wrong, it's not good for us. So this morning, we confess to you. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Please hear us this morning as we confess. We're so thankful that you promised us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just, and you'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we receive that today. We receive that as a way of making peace with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread of the Passover meal, and he blessed it, and he said, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to be priests to one another. And you're going to take the bread 
and take a portion. So you'll take it, yours, and then you'll turn to the person next to you and you'll be a priest. You'll say, the body of Christ broken for you because the Bible gives us that authority. He took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. So the body of Christ broken for you. When you get it, hold it and we'll eat it together. Let's pass. next verse with them. body of Christ broken for you. Take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup. I want you to think about this for a minute. I've, I've said this before at Gateway, but let's think about this in light of what we talked about today. Jesus took a 1,400-year-old ceremony, the Passover, and he reinterpreted it said, this cup that represents liberation, you thought was Moses. It's me. It's my blood. So priest, you're going to say to one another, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins.
sing that first verse together again, how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all say to me after the nine o'clock service, I noticed Pastor Ed, you had a really big cup. It's only a teenager would. And I said, that's because I need a lot more of this than most of you. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. Alex? Thank you guys for being here. You are dismissed. Go in peace and have a great Sunday.